all have heroes. Who are some of your heroes and how did they impact your life? Welcome to Catching Up With Heroes, the podcast where we discuss the influence of our individual heroes on our careers and lives, an exploration of how we look up to and learn from others during the journey of life. And now here's your host, Scott Goldbranson. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Catching Up with Heroes. Uh, I am your host, Scott Cobranson. Appreciate you being here on what has been a rough several months in America. Of course, got more difficult over the last week and the last time we spoke to you here on the podcast due to the civil unrest. Of course, the the unfortunate and, and just disgusting murder of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis and the uh, events that have taken place since. And it's one of those things, we're not a political talk show or anything like that, and I'm not going into politics here, but but clearly our country has a long discussion it needs to have. We need to talk to one another. Uh, actions need to happen. Uh, tweets, black squares on your Twitter handle, those types of things, that's not enough. You have to actually talk about what uh, issues separate us, what issues are dividing us, and take them on uh, head on. And the first way I believe to do that is to look inside you. Start with you. Start with your family. Start with your kids if you have them. Start with your friends. Have open and honest discussions about these issues. Uh, they might not impact you on a daily basis. Look, I mean, I'm a Caucasian guy, right? Upper middle class upbringing, all that. I didn't encounter what my friends in the African-American community did or the Latino community. I have a mixed race family. Uh, I married a Hispanic woman, and so my kids are mixed race, but it's different. So, I, you know, the only way you can understand is to talk and understand the other por- uh, person's point of view, walk a mile in somebody's shoes to understand and move on. But the focus of this show, and of course this week we're going to talk a little bit about this because it just fits in, and the whole point of this podcast is to bring to you people who've had this impact on my life and who've had the opportunity to uh, that I've either encountered uh, personally or I've encountered uh, through learning such as I always bring up, um, of course, Sir Winston Churchill, who to me is one of the great leaders of our uh, of our civilization and somebody that I look to for leadership guidance when it comes to things. Of course, I'm not running a country during wartime, but nonetheless, we try to bring interviews and and stories about these people who've impacted me. I share personal stories, but really these are people I think you can learn from too. And with all that's happening here in the country, uh, a person who was on my list, because I have a list of of guests and and subject matter for the podcast that I want to get to. And so I moved him up the list because I thought uh, the timing would be perfect. And this is a person who I grew up with, (laughs) again, um, and somebody I went to high school with. We came from very different backgrounds, of course, uh, but I thought a conversation with him and sharing him with you today would be fantastic. And uh, his name is Moses Castillo. Moses was, uh, is, is now, I should say, the chief investigator for uh, the Dordulian Law Group in Los Angeles. But for 30 years, Moses was a decorated detective with the Los Angeles Police Department. His career in law enforcement began in 1989 as a reserve officer, and he worked mostly in southeast L.A., southeast Los Angeles, including in Hollenbeck, Rampart, Newton areas. In 1991, he graduated uh, from the Distinguished Academy to become an official full-time officer in the country's third largest police force. In 1992, Moses was an officer in the department's Hollenbeck division during the L.A. riots the, after the Rodney King verdict. Uh, Moses was there as a young police officer thrown right in the middle of that riot situation. 93, he worked out of Hollenbeck and became a crash gang unit officer where he remained for two years before going to the personnel division and then hit the uh, elite sex crimes division uh, and juvenile narcotics division. Then in 2005, became a leader in the juvenile division for abused children. And this is amazing stuff because Moses, because we're, we're connected personally. So I would see this on his Facebook page and and hear it from him personally about troubling sex crimes involving children. He worked there and 15 years in the juvenile division for abused children, including working on the the, the well-known National Stewart House case and uh, was a highly decorated and regarded member of LAPD's Sexually Exploited Children's Unit. He retired just as this whole COVID-19 things happened in March 26th of 2020 this past year. And Moses is just a phenomenal human being. But I wanted him to come on today to talk about 
not only his career and some of the things we talked about later in his career, but also about the civil unrest and what we're saying, uh, we're seeing today, I should say, in our country and, and what can be done. Because I'm hearing a lot of people talk about the problems, and that's important. But what I'm not hearing is people who bring solutions. You know, a business mentor once told me, they said, listen, I came to them, I was complaining about something that was going on in the office with the work. And they said, okay, so you have a problem, but you're coming to me with problem and problem and problem, but you're not coming to me with solutions. Come back to me when you have a solution. So that's what we're going to attempt to do today in talking to Moses. He wrote a fantastic piece, which you can find on his website, which is DetectiveMoses.com. Also follow him on Twitter, at Detective Moses. But he wrote a piece and he said, look, here's some steps. If we want to address issues with policing in America and police abuse and abuse of power and things like that, here's how you do it and why maybe some of it's happening. So we're going to talk to that. So today we catch up with my hero, former LAPD detective, Moses Castillo. Moses, welcome to Catching Up With Heroes, my friend. Well, thanks, Scott. I'm really uh, happy to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Well, I'll tell you what, man. You know, we, it, one of the reasons I started this podcast was really to to highlight folks that that I look up to, that I that I respect, that I've learned from, and I think you know that goes from everybody, uh, people I've never known. Winston Churchill, right? So I'm going to interview an author about Winston Churchill and leadership and all that, right down to the people that that I walked side by side with back in the 1980s at a place called Carlsbad High School in Carlsbad, California. And one of those people was you. And Moses, one of the things that I always remember about you, and even though we haven't seen each other physically in quite some time, one of the things that in my mind, you know, you you have impressions of people that stick with you for very, very long periods of time. And for me, it was always that whenever I saw you when we were teenagers and going through that time when we grew up together, is that you always had a smile on your face really. And you were always positive. You always had a positive energy and and expression about you. And at a time when you're going through all that hormonal balance, and I know you, and we'll talk about how you moved there and you came from a different place. uh, it, It was, it's something that stuck in my head. And it always, whenever I saw you, even if I was having a bad day, Seeing Moses Castillo in the hallway was always uh, something that, that brought, uh, brought you up, didn't bring you down. So thank you for that. I know that's 30-some years ago, uh, but I really mean that. So, well, thank you for that. Yeah, no, but Moses. Appreciate so, that very much. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. And, you know, you, you sometimes with age, you realize how much impact people had on you without you realizing it at the time. So thank you again. Um, now, Moses, we graduate high school in 1988, right? And, and we all kind of go our separate ways. And, and some of us keep in touch. This is before social media for those of you listening who don't remember a time when we didn't have cell phones and social media. So we all kind of lost touch of each other. We would catch each other when we were back in town or whatever. But you get out of, you get out of school and you follow a different path, you decided that you wanted to go into law enforcement. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about what brought you to the place in your life as a young man where you said, you know what, I want to go serve the community. I want to be a police officer. Well, it it all started actually in Carlsbad when um, I was the youth program director at an after school program over at Kelly Elementary School as part of the uh, Carlsbad Boys and Girls Club. And I did that during my sophomore and uh, the latter part of my sophomore and then junior and senior years. And uh, it was one of those parents of those children that was a Carlsbad police officer who actually invited me uh, to go on a ride along with him, uh, being Spino. And uh, uh, he brought me from the very beginning, from you know, walking into the police station, going into his locker, saw him uh, suit up put on his vest, put on his uniform, put on his badge, and uh, attend roll call. And then from there, he, you know, put me in his patrol car and he drove around. And uh, from that day forward, I, I was sold. Uh, you know, because initially, I thought I wanted to be a school teacher and I wanted to work with the youth in that fashion. But once I saw him and his interaction with other police officers, I really loved the roll call. You know, it was fun. It was a... Uh, uh, you know, it was cops beating cops, and, and then from there, his interactions with the public. And, uh, you know, I, I went with him to court. I saw him interact with uh, the judges. And it was just, uh, to me, that was a turning point in my direction of where I wanted to go. And right after high school, I uh, applied to be an LAPD reserve officer. Back then, they, well, they still do have a program 
where you could be a reserve officer at the age of 18 uh, and then uh, take it from there. So at age 19, I graduated from the LAPD Reserve Academy, and that's where my career began, actually, in the service to Los Angeles as a Los Angeles police officer. And in 1991, in November, that's when I uh, entered the academy uh, to be a sworn police officer. And, uh, you know, and we'll talk more about how we are here today now, uh, you know, almost 30 plus years later, <laughs> uh, I'm now retired. Yeah. Yeah, I know. The fact that you're retired, I'm like, holy crap, man, we're getting old. But no, you, I mean, 30 years of service in the Los Angeles Police Department. Again, you just retired in March of 2020, correct? Officially? So just, just recently. Yes. Yeah, so you know, well, my last day of work was March 19th, uh, right when uh, COVID uh, was beginning to hit. And uh, that's when I decided that this is the time to just... Uh, I can move on because I, I don't want to deal with all that COVID stuff. And little did I know that you know now we're dealing with uh, civil unrest and uh, awful uh, situation that happened to uh, George Floyd, and uh, which you know we'll talk about that as well. And uh, yeah, it's just you know coming full circle. And I lived through the 1992 riots as an officer, and uh, it's just pretty sad that you know we're living it all over again. Well, yeah, and exactly. And it's it's unfortunate sometimes that history repeats itself. Uh, you, you, you like it when it's positive, but when it's negative, it's not a good thing. And, and Moses, that's a thing, too. Clearly for you, though, I mean, you mentioned wanting to first be maybe a school teacher. You've had this, it's just an inherent thing inside you, right, that you wanted to serve and help your community, right? I mean, that that's a teacher. If you're a teacher, you want to help kids. And I know you work in youth sports um, now still, and you help kids and you have your own children. But for you, is that just something that, that was always inside you as a kid growing up that you were taught within your family was to to give back to the community and serve? And so then that's sort of what skewed you towards, towards the police work? Well, like I said, uh, when I met uh, Officer Dean Spinoz, and you know that was a turning point. But you know, yeah, I do. I do recall early in my life, childhood. I would call it my wonder years. I was probably in second and third grade. Uh, I grew up in East Los Angeles, uh, and uh, you know, right next door to my house was a gang house where uh, gang members actually lived, and they congregated there. And so, it, it wasn't uncommon to hear and see shootings take place, drive-by shootings back then. And I would remember, you know taking cover and, and diving just to, uh, at the sound of gunshots, just to, uh, you know, avoid getting hit. That, that was my fear. But I remember seeing this deputy sheriff uh, constantly in our, in our neighborhood. I would see him drive by all the time. He actually looked like the, uh, you know, Clark Kent in, in a sheriff <laughs> deputy's uniform. He had that, that clean cut haircut, and, you know, comb to the side. And, uh, you know, he was, he was built tough and he, he had, he was very muscular, and you know, he was probably about six feet two, uh, uh, you know, 180 pounds, and he was fit. And I just remember, and one day, our vehicle uh, was stolen from our garage, and he came, and when I saw him in person, I go, wow. And I was like <laughs> in awe, and then he, he took the report, and then well, four days later, I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking like a kid, four days later, we get a phone call that uh, the car was found, and I'm thinking in my mind, wow, he found our car. Like, wow, he's so cool. And I, that I always had that desire of wanting to give back to the community, be like him. And I thought that was so. There was some seeds planted back there by the interaction that this officer, this deputy, had with me and my family. It was a positive experience, and I and I really never forgot that. And so, you know, and I think that desire because I didn't think I had what it took to be a police officer. I, I, I had very uh, low self esteem when it came to that kind of thing. I was really quiet. I was. You know, very, uh, you know, just I didn't really have uh, that social skills to really, you know, build my confidence. And so, uh, but again, I'm very fortunate that, you know, LAPD back then, they still do. They have an excellent program where they help uh, police applicants through the application process get physically uh, fit and in shape and get ready for the academy. And so all those things really help me along the way and, and build my confidence and uh, you know I always to me I always pray to God I say hey this is your will because obviously being a police officer comes with uh, risk inherent risk and dangers so I always knew that was a factor I my, my mom actually cried when I graduated from the reserve academy she, 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 she since passed away before 
I, I joined the uh, you know regular police academy, but at least she was alive to see me graduate from the reserve academy. And I remember her seeing her crying because she she saw this as a death sentence, if you will, because she was oh my guy, he's gonna get killed out there. Um, and uh, in any event, I just uh, never really thought that I had what it took, but I finally made it, and, and here I am. And I mean, I can tell you stories of uh, my experiences, <laughs> but you know, I see it not as a job. I see, so to me, when I prayed, I prayed that for God to allow me to pass every phase of the academy, because there's different phases. You have to pass every exam, every shooting exam, every self-defense exam. And I said, if it's not your rule, then don't let me pass. Because many many uh, recruits do not graduate because they, they didn't pass a certain portion of the training program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like I said, uh, I saw it as a calling. It's not, it wasn't just a job. It wasn't just a career. But it really was my calling in life to, to help people. And then when I see what I've done and, and the interaction I've had with people, uh, you know, it's amazing because I've met people in their darkest time in their life, in very painful areas of their life. And to come in and for them to tell me, uh, you know, weeks or months or even years later, come back and look for me to thank me because I was their angel. And oftentimes, uh, you know, they do come back and tell me that, and it, it just feels so gratifying. And I begin to see that there was a purpose. Hey, everyone. This is Sharon Waxman. I'm the founder and the editor-in-chief of The Wrap, the premier news source for daily coverage of the entertainment industry. I'm also your host of this new podcast, The Wrap Up show that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. Each week, we'll bring you the latest news on the business of movies, TV, streaming, and tech. So be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you each week on The Wrap-Up. Yeah. It, well, and that's the... that's the Oh yeah, and, and you're right about the calling. Again, we're we're talking with uh, my good friend, former high school chum Moses Castillo. He is retired Los Angeles Police Department detective. Now works at the Dor- Dordulian. Do I have that right? Dordulian Law Group. Um, yeah. And uh, yes. continuing to br- help bring justice, uh, especially around things like sex crimes. And we'll get to, to some of your other work in a minute. But Moses, the one thing with what's happening in the world after the murder of George Floyd and all the civil unrest we've seen uh, is, is, is the story you mentioned about being a child in an area in East Los Angeles where you routine, routine, routinely saw shootings or heard them and, 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 and had things happen around you was that positive interaction you had with a police officer officer, right? So, so that's, that's something I think at the core of this issue is that in some of these communities, especially in our African-American inner city communities, a lot of folks don't feel like, and I, and I don't know, cause I've never been in their shoes, but a lot of them express that they don't have positive interactions with the police in whatever city they may be in. But there you are, you're in, you're a young police officer, uh, 1992. You're in the Hollenbeck division in Los Angeles, which if people know LA, they know where that's at. And the riots happened right after the Rodney King uh, verdict uh, happened and came down and people were upset about that. Um, when you were back at that time as a young officer, as a Latino officer and having to go into these communities where that, that, that might be primarily African-American, how did how do you how did you bridge that gap and gain trust and how do how do officers today learn from that and learn from what we're going through now Moses to build trust again because clearly trust has been lost in many areas. And that's the key. I think it's very important that uh, we build that trust and then once we have it, you know, try to maintain it. And I think I thought we were making big strides. In- and building that trust, and LAPD has done a you know phenomenal job throughout the years in trying to uh, work towards that goal. And uh, but yes, back then you know uh, you know our training was six months long in the academy, and then the last we had one last month, which would be the seventh month. Back then we had a one month ride along program where I would ride along with my training officer for a month, and then uh, go back and then graduate. Well, it was during that one month ride along that the riots broke out, and I was working with a uh, officer, Fred Rodriguez. He was a 30-year veteran of street cop. That's all he was. He never did anything other than patrolling the streets of Los Angeles. So you can imagine he really taught me a lot of uh, you know life lessons and not only tactics and, and whatever, but and interaction with people. And so when that night broke out, 
uh, I just remember uh, chaos. There was there was fires everywhere, and there was police officers requesting help. Shots fired. Uh, you know, it, it was nonstop. We actually uh, were required to drive code three, which means lightning sirens from Hollenbeck all the way to the south end to assess the situation where a Korean uh, store owner was being held hostage by looters. And man, it was it was it was wild. I, you know. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, 21 years old. What am I doing here? <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, it was it was crazy. And so, uh, yeah, I saw the anger, I saw the frustration, and uh, you know, back then I didn't know a lot. Uh, I just, I just, but I sensed from the police department the morale was really, really low uh, because it really felt that we had no community support from anybody, and that, that we were we were targets. And, and back then, the difference between the riots of 1992 and the riots now, back then, it was just localized in Los Angeles area. Not the whole city, just, you know, south end primarily, and then it kind of grew out to uh, the east side in Hollaback a little bit. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, uh, it, it, you know, it just probably dwindled uh, by the time day three came along. Now we had the, uh, the National Guard, California National Guard came in, and then that helped restore order. But today, I think uh, I, it's just, I don't even have words to really adequately describe how heartbroken I am when I see that all this is happening throughout our country. All 50 states have actually seen some form of uh, civil unrest. Now, uh, my fortune said it best. You know, he doesn't like the fact that all these uh, protesters are, are getting discredited uh, by these. Uh, Unlawful uh, looters and lawbreakers that mm -hmm. uh, are, are robbing and burglarizing these properties and burning them down. Uh, that is taken away from the message, and I get it. I hear you. What happened to George Floyd should have never have happened. And this morning, as I'm watching some of the uh, funeral coverage, uh, you know, it brings it home. He was a human being. He was one of us, and to see him uh, suffer that. You know, on TV, for the whole world to witness, uh, I, it breaks my heart that everything that we work for as law enforcement to uphold the law, to to gain that trust, uh, just went down the tubes because of that action of that police officer and his partners. And uh, I'm grateful that they are going to be held accountable. And uh, I just pray and hope that at the conclusion of their uh, due process, that there is some justice because if, for some reason, if they don't, uh, I, I, I think it's going to get 10 times worse than what we're seeing now. Yeah, and, and, and that's the thing, Moses. I think, too, you, we have some people right now in the country, and I understand you know, when, when, when emotions are raw, and you, having been a police officer uh, from, from the street level all the way to, like I said, working crimes against children, you've seen all sorts of ugliness, and you've seen emotion when people are angry and they're, they want justice or, or they're at their, their, their absolute worst because something has happened to them. And I think, I think that before you can start to think level-headed and start to think about how you change things, uh, people have to get through that emotion. Uh, and, and I think that you look at it and, and you look at, I have, I have family in law enforcement as well, right? And you look at the numbers, the numbers of lethal interactions with police officers are, are continue to go down, uh, including those in the African-American community. But then one case like this and several cases, now this year we've seen several, the one in Georgia and others, where, where it's contrary to that. So it doesn't matter even if the, the, the evidence shows that the numbers are lower. It's just in these egregious cases. And then for those those folks in those communities, Moses, they look at it and say, well, yeah, but what are we not seeing? You guys don't see it every day. You don't see the things that maybe necessarily happen. And let's face it, Moses, you know, you you there's different police departments, different parts of the country. They're run differently. And although we all respect law enforcement, uh, just like any profession, there's people who are not on the up and up. And uh, I want to tell people they they should read the post you did, and I know it's up on your website, uh, DetectiveMoses.com. Correct? Yes, it is. It's up yeah. there, and uh, yeah, it actually took a few days to really you know think about the response I was going to give because you know people were asking me for my opinion and my take, and I finally uh, you know put put it down on paper, and uh, you know. There's different facets, but one of the things that, that comes to mind right away is the selection process for police officers. Right. Uh, you know, there was a period, there was a period of time where I actually worked uh, background investigations for police applicants, so I was aware of how 
that process works. I mean, one of the things I would do uh, now is I'll start with the officers from Minneapolis. I would, if I was in their department, I would go back to their personnel file and look uh, at their background application process and, and see if, we, if they missed any red flags. And if they did, then learn from that and tiny those, uh, you know, weaknesses in that hiring process and, and do better uh, in, in that process. Because law enforcement, as, as, a, as a general rule, it, it's, a, it's a profession that it's really difficult to recruit for. And I think now we've seen what we're seeing uh, across our country. Uh, I don't think people will be inclined to apply. And, and when, when you become a police officer, so the pay is, is, is okay, but it's not it's not the best. Um, and I think if you really want to hire good quality people, uh, you gotta you gotta pay them. You gotta give them some good, uh, you know, financial incentives along with some benefits that that start off start off well. And at the same time, I think uh, another key point is the 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 department's image uh, must reflect or mirror the the image of the community it serves. Yes, I'm not sure the demographics in, in, in uh, Minnesota or Minneapolis where this occurred, but uh, you know if 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 their community and, uh, image and the department's image are not the same, uh, I think to, in order to build that trust, you got to start working to, towards that direction and, and uh, make the department reflect the community. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, again, you have to read Moses's post up on uh, DetectiveMoses.com. Also follow him at the same. It's at Detective Moses on Twitter. Please do that for me uh, if you really want somebody who's got not only experience living through things like this, but 30 years of police work. And not only that, but he has solutions. And I think that's, that's what we need within the discussion is solutions because we can all identify problems all day. But as a business mentor once told me, you can come to me all day with problems, but when are you going to come to me with solutions? And I think you have some great solutions. And, and Moses, in that post, um, you, you talk about the hiring practices. And, and I've read some, you know, I've been obviously researching since all this has started happening read a piece uh, that was from Forbes.com back in uh, 2008, which talked about some some issues that police forces were having across the country, one of which they identified as saying a lot of uh, new police officers, because of that recruiting process, because it wasn't as rigorous in some areas and others, they would hire a lot of folks coming out of the military that were coming back from our various wars over the last 10 years or 12, 15 years now, uh, and, and that some of these folks were trained in military, but not necessarily had the the kind of um, I think uh, uh, mentality to be a police officer. Talk about that because I think you know when you get trained in the military. I know some a lot of military guys go from military they they transition into the into the into police work, which makes some sense I think for most people. But the tactics, if you're marching into Iraq and you have to clear a street versus going in and policing a community in in Southeast Los Angeles. Talk about that mentality. Did you did you see guys who were easily um, uh, able to make the switch, and then others that maybe struggled with it? You know, my experiences are very positive in that in that arena because uh, the police officers that I work with and worked alongside with uh, that had military experience, they were our, our best leaders, our best tacticians. Mm. They, they understood, you know, the weapons. They understood uh, tactics. Uh, and uh, the command presence, I mean, everything. So it, it, that experience with the military, to me, actually was a positive. Because if nothing else, they, they actually helped uh, with their leadership skills and then passed that on to, to those around them. Um, and so, like, for me, I had no experience whatsoever. I never even shot a gun before. You know, on a funny side note, my sister, older than me, when I was going through the background process, uh, told my background investigator, you don't want Moses. He's too nice. He can't even kill a fly, or he won't even kill a fly. And but the background visitor told him, "Well, that's the people we want because we don't want people to get crazy and you know authority hungry and, and overbearing." And so, yeah, we're looking for for people, uh, you know, real people with real uh, life experiences that can actually help our department, uh, you know, be better and, and and make a difference in the community. So, but well, I think. Um, that might be a perception, and I don't know if that study actually went ahead and made it. But I could see now that if, if they if they may be suffering from uh, you know some of the experiences that they had on back then in the war zone, whether it's 
you know, post-traumatic stress disorders and that kind of thing. Yes, uh, those can get weeded out. That's why I said that, you know, uh, be careful on the psychological profile and how analysis of the individual because red flags can be discovered. Uh, and if we know them, don't ignore them. You know, there's sometimes people get disqualified during the psychological evaluation, mm-hmm. but then we give them an appeal, uh, give them the opportunity to appeal, and then they go out and get their own logical evaluation that's favorable and then they come back and then they get hired. So some so some of the things I said just go back and take a second look and uh you know don't be afraid to say no to somebody because if you if you based on you know whatever analysis you have, I think um, you have to trust the judgment and you know and the only way we can know if we're doing that is going back and doing a biopsy on our personnel uh backgrounds and, and figure out did we miss anything. Right. And, and one of the things, too, you talk about with this is, is again, having police, people police the community that look like the community and and getting getting, for example, African-American officers, Latino officers. I've experienced more Latino officers, I guess, maybe because we grew up in, in California uh, and here in Nevada. I see them a lot, too, with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Um, but for for trying to recruit African-American officers who might grow up with a negative perception of the police. And then you have all the other things like you're talking about where the pay is not great. Uh, the benefits aren't always depending where you're at. Um, how do you overcome that? Is, is this one of the key pieces that you think, and I know you write about it in your piece, is, is this one of the things that these police departments need to start to prioritize and budget for? Yes, I believe that if you put that in your budget so you could hire and, and, and recruit, uh, I mean, LAPD, they do their very best to even go throughout the country to hire individuals, and they actually have an expedited testing process for any out-of-town applicants. So they'll allow them to come in on a particular weekend and complete pretty much all the testing processes, you know, like going through the physical agility test, the polygraph examination, the the site interview, the oral interview, and we try to knock that down in, in one process. And then what takes longer is going to be the background investigation. Obviously, we can't finish somebody's background and, and just a weekend, but but we can allow them to do the the actual different phases of the testing in one weekend. I think it's actually five days, uh, including the weekend, and, and then allow the background phase to go. So somebody could actually start process and within six months uh, join the police academy, and then you get paid from day one police academy. And uh, yeah, so that's you know that's what we want. We want to hire from there from within, and and sometimes. People that come from out of state, they're going to have to learn uh, the culture here in Los Angeles. So that sometimes that's a, mm-hmm. a that's a huge learning curve as well. But we, we do have the best training. We do train our officers to to use uh, the escalation tactics. Uh, it's been really preached upon us for the last several years uh, to try to use communication skills, use time and distance, and and we train on how to address uh, those suffering from mental illness. That's another. Uh, factor uh, for those that some of them are experiencing homelessness because that population has skyrocketed in the last few years, and that's been another issue that you know we have to uh, address. Yeah, and uh, these kind of issues now, you know, taking back order to what's what we're facing today, and you know, there's so many issues out there. But the bottom line is, you know, when somebody came to, uh, to apply to be a police officer they came with the intention of making a difference. And I think that I've always told, as a matter of fact, I, I, I assisted one of our clients in making a police report recently in one of the local uh, police stations here. And afterwards, I, I noticed that the officer that took the report, he was probably two months out of the academy. So I, one of the first things I told him, look, let me tell you something. The day you forget why you joined this police department, it's time for you to move on. Yeah. To never forget, you came around here to make a difference, to help people, to to really do the best you can to represent in, in the highest reference of the law. And, and once you forget that, if it gets, you know, you lose sight of that, it's time for you to move on. And I also thought, you know, loyalty is between you and your family. You got to do what's best for you and your family as far as you, as you consider your career, where you want to go, how you want to promote. That kind of thing. I said, don't be afraid to do things, but when you do them, do it with 
uh, your family in mind. That's the, the most important thing is you and your family. And uh, number one goal, always make it home at night. And that's that's the bottom line. Yeah. It's, uh, uh, no. So, yeah. It's, it's. Go ahead, Moses. Sorry. No, and that's that's the key. You know, uh, sometimes you know people here this side of the you know law enforcement, and that's another thing I want. I want police departments across across the country to develop these special uh, groups or committees, and that are that are from. Uh, key community members from the local community and and come meet the police officers on a regular basis, get to know our names, we get to know your names. And once you see our side and, and try to understand it and you understand your side, I think uh, that's going to go a long way. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be easy. I don't want, uh, you know, people in the community uh, that are, are criminals or, or, or that are not law-abiding to be part of these uh, because that, that, that's, that's not going to work. But, but there are people that do want their communities to be peaceful, to, to be a place where they live uh, in peace and, and security. And that's the key, is, is engage. Uh, I know like in LAPD, you know, they have a program called Senior Lead Officer. That Senior Lead Officer is a police officer, like a trained officer that, you know, that's uh, been on the department for some time and his job is to be the liaison between the community and the police department. So the community members will then know that officer's name, whether they're business uh, owners in the area or they live there. Uh, get to know your senior officer, and when something comes up or there's some ongoing issues or quality of life issues, bring it to that officer's attention. He or she will then find the resources to address that. So I think if we build on that, uh, you know, instead of, you know, typically there's one officer assigned to a particular geographic area. Maybe we need to build that even more because obviously that one officer, you know, is not going to be there 24 7. He's going to be on days off or he's gonna, she's going to be on days off. So maybe if we build that program even more with additional personnel where there's more consistency and more uh, access uh, to these officers, I think that would bridge the gap uh, more so. And again, uh, Well, that's the key though, Moses, you're right. It's, it's about being involved. And, and, and again, you know, I think, you know, when I talk to police officers, I have a lot of friends in town and I said some family who, who are in law enforcement here in the Las Vegas Valley. uh, And every time I talk to them again, they, to me, they're good examples because they talk about getting to know their communities and all that stuff. And they care and they realize that their function is not just to put bad guys away. Yes, you're there. If somebody breaks the law, you're there to enforce it. But they go into their job every day looking at it from the perspective, I'm here to protect and serve the law-abiding people of this community, whatever community it may be. And they look at it from that lens. Unfortunately, as we've seen, we have bad examples. And I think the anger that is that is put forth right now during all of this, and it's valid for a lot of people who experience negative situations, they're very anti-police right now. But at the bottom, or excuse me, at the end of the day, the police have to be part of the solution. You know, I'm seeing a lot of people, I think well-meaning activists who are coming out saying that we need to defund the police down there in Los Angeles where you're at. I've seen a lot of protests saying that they need to take money away from the police. And in my view, that is not the answer. The answer is it's not a funding issue. The money is taking the money, putting it in the right spots to solve issues in your community. And I know I'm talking to a former police officer, so some people might listen to this and say, well, you're biased because, you know, you know law enforcement and he was in law enforcement, whatever. But the, at the end of the day, Moses, to solve big problems like this, the African-American community can't solve it on its own. The white community can't solve it on The Hispanic community can't solve it. We all have to come together and able to do it. It can't just be words either. It has to be actions. You're absolutely right. And it does work when we work with the community. I'll give you some other examples. Uh, while I was assigned to the abuse child unit, it's a specialized unit that investigates crimes against children physical abuse, sex abuse, and in some cases, murder, uh, I spearheaded a program where, where I uh, mentored and helped uh, college interns shadow me. They, they shadowed me for, for some of them for a couple of years. And during that process, uh, some of the feedback I got was like, eye-opening. They said, oh my gosh, I've never seen this side of uh, law enforcement. And I was very raw with them. But, you know, I, I, I even, you know, in some cases, I got really emotional and 
cheered up in some of the cases because there were pretty severe cases. And, uh, and as I saw them go through the process, many of these interns then now became social workers, became probation officers, not necessarily working for LAPD, but nonetheless, they, wanted, they, they sought careers where they could help make a difference. And, and if we could have more of that, uh, if we could have more people shadow some detectives, shadow some police officers, obviously this is a very dangerous job, so we're not going to put them in harm's way. And, uh, and I was able to, to do that. When I, so I kept them out of harm's way. So I just took them to, when I went to court, they went with me. When I went to a special, maybe a positive examination, they went with me. So, but they still got to see this kind of police work. Uh, and, you know, and they saw something that inspired them to, to pursue their careers in, you know, like I said, probation officers, social workers, and that kind of stuff. And, uh, and I still keep in contact with them today, and, and it's amazing that you know they appreciate it, and they saw that that side that most people don't see. And you won't see it unless you engage, unless you get involved, unless you apply. So that's my challenge to you: is either consider a career in law enforcement, whether it's in probation, police officer, prosecutor, judge, an attorney. Uh, you know, my fourteen-year-old. He was so enraged. He goes, you know what? That's it. I'm going to be, uh, you know, he went from saying I'm going to be a cop. I said he wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, a lawyer so he could be a judge. Wow. So I'm all for it. And uh, uh, I actually posted a little video of him in his prompting <laughs> interview. And uh, he, he spoke his, his, his mind. And uh, and the way he came across, I go, yep, you're ready. You're ready, ready to be a judge. You're sure. ready to be a lawyer and a judge, right? Business with personality. That's the idea that launched London's business newspaper, City AM, 15 years ago. And it's the same idea that inspired our new daily podcast, The City View, where you'll find me, City AM editor Christian May, interviewing the most well-known, influential and colourful figures from business, politics and finance. The City View from City AM with a new episode every morning. It's the perfect start to your working day. Uh, no, and that's great. Again, yeah, we're, exactly. we're talking to my my friend and one of my heroes, Moses Castillo. He's the chief investigator currently at Dordulian Law Group in Los Angeles, a 30-year veteran, now retired of the Los Angeles Police Department. And and Moses, uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to close on this subject because we could probably go on all day about it. But uh, that's what I've challenged people to do. You talk about people going into careers and to, to make a difference in their community, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be legal, the legal system, being a lawyer, being a judge, uh, being a social worker to have impact in these communities that need help. Uh, but I also challenge everybody out there listening. Those might not be your direction. You already might have a career. But I've always said, and I've said during this time, Moses, that you got to get out of your bubble. You know, if you're, if you live in a white middle-class neighborhood, nothing wrong with that. That's fine. But venture out, volunteer in areas where that don't, where people don't look like you volunteer. It's great to give money. We're seeing a lot of people donate money at this time during this unrest to these causes around things. Uh, but at the same time, and that's great, but you also need to get out. You need to experience it because without understanding, without seeing what folks go through in different communities, you're never going to quite understand understand that and it's never going to sink in at a human level and so I invite people to do that you can do it in small ways and I've said all along to to start change it has to start within you you have to start individually it's not just some kumbaya thing it really is you have to start within your own heart and with what you do in your life and challenge your own assumptions and thinking uh, and that's how we we change things Uh, but Moses what I want to do now um, with the time I have left with you is is switch gears a little bit and talk about some of your other work Um, when you look at what you were able to do you went from working uh, a, a, as a as a uh, uh, in the narcotics division at um, at the LAPD to working in the gangs unit uh, to working in personnel divisions, and then you moved over into an area that seems so just scary to me. But knowing your personality and your calmness about you, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And that was in in, in the elite sex crimes unit uh, where you helped uh, childhood sexual abuse victims and others. Um, that work for you uh, had to be just amazingly mentally taxing and I'm sure trying on you and your family at times. How, how have you been able to deal with that, process it, and then now turn that into a career post-law enforcement to help those victims still? Well, it was uh, the way I processed it was faith, family, and friends. And my outlook with the 
uh, youth soccer program in our, in our local area. But you know, I had this routine that every every Sunday morning uh, during our church service there was worship. Every during worship, I'd actually pray. I would pray for all my victims, the ones that I had in the past, the ones that I currently had, and then I actually prayed for the future victims because unfortunately, you know, they keep coming. And I think allowing me to do that, you know, I would actually ask, I'm going to get emotional, pocket pocket, but I would actually ask for that pain to go away. Because one of the things I did allow myself, I allowed myself to feel the victims I came in contact with, to feel their pain, because that was what inspired me, motivated me to to fight for them, to advocate for them, to be their voice, because oftentimes they don't have one. You know, my youngest victim of a sexual assault she was only four weeks old. Oh. And her sexual assault was so horrendous. It was all caught on video that she had tears in her, you know, infinite parts of her body bleeding you know, from both ends and it just it just sickened. And uh, that one really, really uh, stuck to me and it still does. But then my oldest victim is ninety two years old. So oh. you know, for people to think that it only happens to to, you know, beautiful women or those are all horrible myths, by the way. Uh, it's not true. It happens to. It can happen to anyone, and and anybody at any time. And so, you know, I never thought I would ever see a child that young or someone that old, but I did. Uh, but I can tell you that in both cases, these individuals are now in prison for the rest of their life, and never going to see uh, you know, freedom ever again, and the opportunity to hurt an innocent person ever again. And that's what makes a difference. And that's what I want people to understand: is that we do care as law enforcement. When you see the letters on the streets being tagged up, uh, ACAB, all cops are bad, I'm going to put an N on the front of that and say, no, not all cops are bad. Um, we do care. And, you know, when we do see a bad cop and we identify them, we get dealt with. They get removed if, if, if need be. You know, departments, you know, uh, I know I speak for LAPD, but we do take misconduct serious. There's some serious consequences up until termination level. Of a doctor that's conducting herself in a very unprofessional or maybe even criminal way, they're gone. We don't we don't put up with that. Um, and so, my message is, you know, we're not perfect. Our hearts in the right place, and we are dedicated to serving you. And you know, all you people out there that were unlawfully protesting and, and have this anger towards police officers, guess what? When you dial nine one one, we're still going to come to your home. And offer, and offer the services that you need at that time, uh, regardless of your viewpoints. And, and that's the message is that we're here for anyone who needs us, and uh, we're going to do our very best. And then when we do fail, we're going to learn from it, and we're going to suffer consequences, obviously, to it. And, uh, but I just hope that the message is loud and clear that what happened to George Floyd was not what should never happen, and it should never be repeated ever again. And that's our goal, is that we learn from this, and not allow this to happen again. Well, well, well said, my friend. And I know, and this is why I wanted to talk to you at this time. I, I had you on my list to be on the on the podcast anyway, but obviously, with events that have have occurred over the past few weeks, uh, I thought now would be a better time than ever. Now, now, Moses, you you've taken this amazing uh, career in law enforcement. Now you've gone into the private sector. You're a civilian now, right? Uh, working uh, for the Dordulian Law Group as their chief investigator. How's that been for you, man? How how how's the adjustment been from being that police officer and i know it's only been a few months uh but how's it going for you are you are, are you still struggling with the, the the kind of moving from being on the clock all the time with all that stuff going on to to now a uh, a more private sector job well you know what i'm actually having a lot of fun i'm enjoying it i'm still getting to meet people in their darkest time where it's very common for uh, uh adults nowadays to to not say anything about the sex abuse that they suffered as a child, you know, until decades later. So I'm meeting them for the very first time, and and I do feel that they do connect with me to a point where they trust me, and they allow us to help them in their civil case against the their sexual offender and anyone else who may have been responsible for the abuse. So oftentimes, uh, what's unique here is that we're, we're we're seeking civil justice in a civil arena. Obviously, it's, it's to get some financial compensation for them uh, is, is the goal. But at the same time, we want to help them heal. So we offer counseling services to them as well. 
and we help them uh, seek justice in a civil case. And that sometimes could even uh, help uh, promote uh, healing because at least they feel like, okay, somebody did believe me, somebody did uh, trust uh, what I was saying is true and, and help me get some sort of justice. And uh, having said that, uh, so I believe that some of our civil cases that we start as civilly, we may even be successful to even bring up and get some criminal charges for some new things that we learned throughout our investigation. So uh, I've seen, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that in some of our cases that we have now, they, they started a civil case, but we may end up even getting uh, a criminal filing out of it. And that is giving me a little, uh, you know, going back to the old days, because my, my, my boss, Lambda Julian, actually is a former L.A. County Deputy District Attorney uh, wow. prosecutor in sex crimes. So that's how we met each other, is that we prosecuted some really serious uh, sex offenders, serial rapists, uh, child molesters, and put them away for a long time. He was the prosecutor, I was the detective, and uh, here we are, uh, post our uh, careers, and, and now we're finding this new calling in our life, and I'm really looking forward to it of making an impact is not only are we seeking financial gain for our victims, but also healing, but in doing so, I hope that we also create change when change is required from institutions such as the church or organization that uh, may have been uh, a key factor in the abuse that they sustained and they suffered for failing to do right things. So hopefully we would also prevent future uh, victims from uh, becoming victims at the hands of somebody who works for a school, a church, or any other uh, community-based organizations, or any, uh, you know, this 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 area of sexual abuse can happen anywhere at, at any place. And we've also taken some cases where we go after the individuals, even if uh, they don't belong to any organization. So we are very proactive, and uh, we do want to help our victims. And you know, it's case by case, but you know, we'll go after the individual as well. If, if the situation uh, suits uh, some sort of uh, financial gain, uh, uh, and um, we're not we're not afraid to litigate uh, cases and or, or, or try cases, uh, I should say, because uh, my boss he's, he's a he's a trial judge. He's a trial lawyer. He loves going to trial. He loves uh, you know he's, he's really great at it. So I'm really excited to be part of this team. Uh, we we call ourselves we have a team called the Sexual Assault. Um, this experts, uh, we have a, a page dedicated to that at our uh, dlawgroup.com website, and you can learn more about our team. We have uh, uh, attorneys, we have myself as a part of the team, and we also have victim advocates, certified victim advocates as part of the process, and we also have our in-house uh, therapists that can help with the uh, that's, that's, a, that's amazing. And the fact that they brought you on board was brilliant because of the work that you've done. Um, and not only that, but as we talked about all the policing issues around the George Floyd case and all this stuff, it's that trust. You've built that trust over 30 years with the community um, and with prosecutors and with victim advocates and all these things. So it makes a lot of sense. Again, DL. AW Group, so dlawgroup.com. Uh, you can learn more about them there. And of course, detectivemoses.com and at Detective Moses on Twitter. Make sure you follow him. If you want some good commentary, thoughtful and and necessary uh, around all of this, make sure you you follow both. And Moses, I got to tell you, man, you know, we, 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 when we were growing up in the 80s, uh, we didn't have all these information channels where people could learn about how to protect themselves, how to protect their children from predators and all this kind of stuff. So that piece of it is as bad as some of this stuff is for perpetrating. I mean, you know, I have young kids still right at home. And so I'm, I don't allow them to go online and talk to people they don't know and do all of these things. Um, but for, for parents out there, I, I want to end with this before I, I do a personal goodbye to you, but for, for those parents and people out there looking to protect kids, learning or looking to protect maybe elderly members of their family that are in nursing homes, what's the best thing that they can do to protect those around them to make sure that they don't fall victim to this? Well, one quick tip of the, the, the National Center for Missing and Children, they, they, they have an excellent resource center. So if you go to missingkids.org or missingkids.com, you go straight to the website and there's a lot of uh, resources there for parents and for, for teens to how to protect themselves on the internet from these predators. But uh, if there's an adult in your child's life that is showing uh, interest in your, in your child, 
and they want to spend more time with your child than you do, that's a red flag. Mm. So you know, just a quick tip of advice here. So keep that in mind. But you know, you got to be involved. There's a balance. And sometimes it's just with life, we get so caught up on so many different things that you really got to stop and sometimes just turn off from from social media, from life, uh, being so busy, and really be intentional with your kids, teaching them uh, your thoughts and, and prevent you know prevention uh, uh, strategies on on these kind of things. I I've taught my kids uh, how these predators operate, and I talk to them all the time, and I tell them how they operate and teach them how they operate so that if they see those signs, they know what to do. And so, you know, they can learn more. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, they can send me a message at, you, you mentioned my landing page, uh, .com. You could There's a way for you to reach out to me there, send me a message. I'll be more than happy to give you additional resources at that point as well, or, or be a resource for you. Yeah. That, uh, should you need our services. Such great advice. Cause I think too, that, that a lot of parents, well-meaning, they want to shelter like we do. We want our kids to be kids. We don't want to have to have them worry about someone uh, sexually assaulting them or abducting them or whatever it may be. And so we tend to not talk to them about it, but the, the opposite is true. We should uh, in, in appropriate ways, talk to them about being aware of those around them and, and, and when it's not safe and who they can contact uh, when, when they don't feel like they're safe. So that's key. And, and, and that's awesome. Yeah, reach out to Moses. Again, it's uh, DetectiveMoses.com. And Moses, I have to say, in closing, man, it was it was great catching up with you um, during these tumultuous times. And I know hopefully we can uh, sit back and, and have a beer together pretty soon and just catch up on, on life stuff and family stuff. But I have to tell you, you know, in, in looking back at growing up and looking at the the people in my life and those that, that, that I really respect and that I've learned from, um, you know, what you've been able to do has been remarkable. And I know, again, knowing so many police officers and, and first responders and, and folks who've served in the military, they never want to be referred to as heroes because they feel like they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, their calling. But I can tell you, I tell my kids all the time, look, you can go to college, you can become whatever you want to be, you can become a mechanic, the best mechanic who ever lived, you can do whatever you want to be and feel successful about it. But at the end of the day, the impact you have on the world uh, is and, and your family, most importantly, and your community is what matters. And I can tell you unequivocally, my friend, that the impact that you have had and still continue to have, and I know you will have for years to come, is very inspiring for me. And, and I know it will be for others who, who read about you and what you've done. And I want to tell you how proud I am of you and that uh, you're someone that, that I hold up in high regard and that I will continue uh, to point people to direction. And I, and I appreciate your leadership, your candidness, and your ability to, to really give people an idea of how we can start to tackle some of these big problems. So uh, Moses, again, thank you, my friend, for spending time with us. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you, Scott. Really appreciate it, and I hope to connect with you soon. One last word: If you ever find a penny on the on the street somewhere on the ground, that will be a Moses penny. A reminder for you to say a prayer for me and any listener. If you find a penny, say a prayer for me because we definitely need them. That's awesome, man. We will do that. That's a great, great way to close it. Again, my guest has been Moses Castillo. He's the chief investigator at uh, the Dorduian Law Group in Los Angeles. You can check them out at dlawgroup.com. Also, detectivemoses.com and on Twitter at Detective Moses. That's going to wrap up this edition of Catching Up with Heroes. Thanks for being with us. And again, thanks to my good friend, guest, childhood friend. We've known each other since we were 14 years old, since we walked the hollowed halls of Carlsbad High School in Carlsbad, California, Mr. Moses Castillo. Just proud of that guy. Glad and, and just happy to call him friend. And what an amazing partner he's been in the communities he's worked in both as a police officer and now as an investigator working to help make sure justice prevails all the time. So we hope you enjoy that. Check him out at Detective Moses, at Detective Moses on Twitter. And then of course, his website, DetectiveMoses.com. Reach out to him if you have questions, as he said, sexual abuse, about the racial issues, about policing, he'll answer you. I mean, he's the most friendly, affable, 
helpful guy you will ever, ever come across. And he's always got time for everybody. So reach out to him. But we want to thank him for being with us as well. We also want to thank you. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, whether it's an Apple podcast, Google podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your information, your audio, make sure you do that. And also share the show. I think a lot of people with what we're going through right now will get something out of it. And uh, we hope that you will do that as well. All right. Well, thank you again. This has been Scott Branson with Catching Up with Heroes. And remember, there are heroes around us every day. Make sure you see them. Make sure you thank them and be your own hero. Make sure you look inside. Do all you can to make your community a better place. Until next time, we'll talk to you guys later. Take care. Thanks for listening to Catching Up With Heroes. Until next time, heroes are all around us. Be sure to stop and appreciate them. 